Well, as you guys know, if you were with us last week, we are starting into a new, uh, I guess, section of 1 Corinthians as we jump into chapter 10 of this incredible and really timely uh, letter written uh, a long time ago, but, but almost as though it was written to us in many ways in terms of some of the realities of first century Corinth versus the realities of 21st century uh, North Georgia. United States of America, however you want to characterize it. Um, and so we come to this section. Last week we, we kind of began by looking at a broad discussion, a broad thought process around matters of idolatry. Uh, this particular chapter is not focused exclusively on idolatry, but it is sort of a prominent overarching theme. It's explicit in some points and then it's really overarching throughout. And so we wanted to kind of take a look at this matter of idolatry and, and really unpack it a little bit and think carefully about it, knowing that we are living in, or drawing the conclusion really, that we are living in an extremely pervasive idolatrous age, that we are uh, 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 in, in, in surrounded by idolatry, that we are battling against idolatry individually, And really drawing our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. So we want to be adopting a posture as we think about this discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that is centered around us being able to be warned and be cautioned so that we can stand that we don't need to be overconfident. The real matter in front of us that was pressing in on the Apostle Paul's heart and mind as he was noting this about the Corinthians was this matter of presumptuousness, of spiritual pride and presumption. Otherwise, why would he have to warn them? And this is not the only place that he has a similar kind of warning. You go into the letter of 2 Corinthians and even tells them to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. So there is a sense in which believers, or maybe more broadly, professing believers certainly, intermixed with believers in the life of a church, can become presumptuous in their walk. Um, They can presume certain things about what constitutes faithfulness, how faithfulness is to be characterized in their daily lives, They can presume upon the goodness and grace and kindness of God and therefore be on the precipice of a dramatic and possibly even destructive, devastating fall. So this is the the general sense of this section that we're going to be looking at. Just to refresh your memories of one particular quote that I, I referenced last week, John MacArthur, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, simply says this about idolatry. He says, The right God can only be worshipped in the right way. Those who try to honor God with immoral and pagan practices bring dishonor on Him and judgment on themselves. It's not enough, in other words, if you just kind of break apart that particular locution, that particular phraseology, it's not enough for us to simply bend the knee, so to speak, to the right God. The call of the faithful is to worship God, the right God, in the right ways, in the ways that he's prescribed. And so what can happen amongst people, I mean, let's just put it this way. Even today, it's still that probably, I think it's probably 70% of the population would acknowledge a belief in God, it's, it's minimum, I mean, it's a majority of people, even in our culture today, would acknowledge a belief in God. But I don't think that we can look around today and say that those 70% of people that would acknowledge a belief in God, they might even adhere to some version of the quote-unquote Christian God. In other words, they're not necessarily think, thinking of some, you know, ethereal spirit being or maybe a different god you know Allah or some type of Buddhist god or some type of other you know world religions god they, they, they believe in from heritage or just you know growing up or the people around them in some version of the Christian god but they're not worshiping 
God in the way that he's prescribed. And so the call for us is faithfulness as God's people in our worship and in our devotion that is manifest. And if you recall, last week we spent some time looking at Genesis, and one of the things that we drew out of that creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is this reality about how we have been made, that we have been created as those who are oriented toward expressed worship. In other words, we are created as worshipers. There is no one who is made who is not made to be a worshiper. And so the, the only question before every person is who or what is the object of that worship and what does that worship look like? What form does it take? So, we know that we're in a world of idolatry. We're surrounded by idolatry. We're, we're, we, we have to wrestle and fight against our own flesh that craves carnal replacements for the true and living God. We, we know all this, so we have to ask ourselves the question, how do, we re, how do we remain faithful in a world like that? Where everything around us is, is drawing us toward idolatry, is compelling us and pushing us and even trying to constrain us toward idolatry? How do, we, how do we remain faithful? How do we stand rather than fall? To go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Well, the Apostle Paul, in this, really in this entire chapter, but prominently what we're going to focus on today is the first 12 verses, is going to give us some perspective on how we can begin to stand in the face of our own internal cravings toward idolatry and the idolatrous influences that are around us all the time. Let's read the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 together to kind of get it set in our minds and then we'll step into the discussion. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now the first thing that I want us to kind of look at from this passage, it really is drawn from the Apostle Paul's emphasis on history. And so in order for us to resist this prideful presumption that we are standing that everything's fine, that we're good. We need to recall redemptive history. That's simply what he's referring to here. We, we can resist prideful presumption if we are constantly recalling redemptive history. This presumption takes many, many forms and many, many shapes. But what we'll see as we kind of unpack this a little bit more fully and we're going to spend a fair amount of time looking at some Old Testament passages that he's referencing, we need to note that it is not enough to be associated with or affiliated with God's people. This is is the big point of presumption that's sort of lingering out there in this passage. And we know this to be a theological truth all throughout Scripture. You, You don't come into the presence of God because you were born into a certain family. 
You don't get to enter into heaven and be with God eternally in paradise because you are of a certain tribe. None of these things are passageways into eternal bliss. So the same principle is true here, but it's much more subtle, I think, for clearly for the, the, the Israelites that he's referencing in these, in these historical references, but it's more subtle for us as well. We can be lulled into thinking that everything is fine because we're evaluating everything by external characteristics. We are, we are putting forward an external measure of faithfulness that is just that. It is merely external. We look throughout the Gospels and we see this was, this was the, the apex. This was the, the point of the spear in the confrontation between Christ and the Pharisees. And his, his rebuke, his castigation of them was spoken in terms like, on the outside you were like whitewashed tombs. Clean, white, pure on the outside, but on the inside you're dead men's bones. So what we're talking about here and what the Apostle Paul is driving the Corinthians away from is this presumption that is based upon, well, I've I've acquired a certain amount of theological knowledge. I associate with the right people. I'm a part of the right gathering, the right church. And so therein lies my faithfulness. Therein lies the legitimacy of my, my faith and my faithfulness to the Lord. I'm sure that you've had your own experiences. Many of you, if not most of you, have had your own experiences with people who have tracked along in some form of faithful living for some period of time and had all of the quote-unquote right external measures that could be checked off on a checklist only to discover at some point down the way that there was something far different going on. And that ultimately is exposed in some way. And painfully, oftentimes, it's exposed through the means of God's judgment. So how do we remain faithful? Well, we resist prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history. Uh, This is what he says. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. And he begins to refer to this the fathers, the, the, the Israelite fathers, the, the people, the patriarchs, if you will, the Old Testament, the fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He, he's essentially employing, the Apostle Paul is essentially employing this long-established axiom that really was succinctly uh, articulated by uh, a early 20th century Spanish-American philosopher named George Santayana. He wrote it in a book in 1905, but then it was made famous by Winston Churchill as he was speaking to Parliament during World War II in 1948. And it's this axiom, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, this originated here with the Apostle Paul, but it's a long-standing wisdom principle. And if you think about what Scripture calls us to, particularly if you look at the Psalms, the Psalms are constantly calling God's people to rehearse and recount and remember the the faithfulness of God and the works of God and the, the goodness of God, to contemplate them and think about them and remember them. And those that fail to remember are inclined to forget. That's the point. Here, Paul is not merely speaking of history in general, of course, but he's pointing to the very redemptive work of God that played out in the history of his chosen people, Israel. And, of course, these references that he makes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they're they're definitely references to recorded actual events, actual people, places, these, these people and events and places that mark time and they chronicle genealogies of people groups and describe rise and fall of nations, it's real history. But more importantly, what he's drawing out 
in the recalling of these things is this endless cautionary tale of people who easily and quickly forget. Forget who God is, forget who they are, and they forget what are the devastating consequences for this kind of forgetfulness, for this kind of exchange. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon that he was preaching on Psalm 111, verses 4 and 5, again, the Psalms are full of this, which says this, He has crushed, excuse me, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear them. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered, the psalmist says. Here's what Spurgeon says in his introductory introductory remarks to this sermon. He says, God's works are, of course, wonderful because they are his works. But they are not a nine days wonder. They are not intended to be admired for a little while and then to be forgotten. The psalmist says, he hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. I fear that we too often fail to keep in our memory the recollection of God's exceeding goodness and that we suffer the works of the Lord as well as His mercies to lie forgotten in unthankfulness. If it has been so in the past with any of us, let us at the outset of our meditation begin to chide ourselves for our forgetfulness and ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen our memories that we may remember the wonderful works of the Lord more than we have done. This is what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. Part of us taking heed lest we fall is to be characterized by those who are constantly reflecting upon the goodness and faithfulness and works of God, both in redemptive history writ large and in our own redemptive history. We go back to those things and we rehearse them. In these opening verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and really all throughout this chapter, he's he's just appealing to this critically important principle of remembering. Remembering who God is, what he has done, and what have been the consequences of forgetting these things. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware. In other words, that's just a, a different way of saying, I want you to know. I want you to call to remembrance. I want you to recall. I do not want you to be unaware of verse 1. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. All these things that he's talking about, he's saying, you need to know these things, not just as a point of interesting or obscure history. We, We need to immerse our thinking into these things, not just because it's some kind of fascinating connection to the new covenant, but in doing so, We are trained, and we are strengthened to be able to stand. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, you want to hedge against falling? Then immerse yourself in biblical truth, and in particular, in the actual redemptive work of God as it has played out, and as as it has been chronicled for us, written down as examples and for our instruction. He's being very explicit in the nature of this charge. The fact of the matter is, is that if we're honest, there there are some who are drawn to Old Testament narrative or just the Old Testament in general, but most people spend a lot of their time in the New Testament, right? But the fact of the matter is that the Apostle Paul is saying not just to Christians in our day and time who have bound copies and even electronic quick access versions of Old and New Testament that we can access any verse in a split second if we just search a key word. He's addressing Gentiles and hearkening them back to this redemptive history. Because in this this historical narrative, we don't just get information about what God did we get revelation about who God is. 
and how he works amongst his people and how he works amongst those who feign deference to him, but their hearts are far from him. And we know that God is immutable. He does not change. So we need to take heed lest we fall. So the first thing he calls them to is to recall the Lord's miraculous deliverance. He emphasizes this importance of recalling redemptive history as a means of safeguarding us against the kind of prideful presumption that can quickly and easily take root in our lives. He he points to this seminal event in Israel's history, the Exodus. This, This was the seminal event. This was the defining event in God's chosen people's history. Is, I don't, verse 1 and 2, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed to the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. These first two verses are clearly a reference to this seminal work in the Exodus. The Pillar New Testament commentary says this about the Exodus, The importance of the Exodus traditions in Israelite consciousness, thought, and imagination can hardly be overestimated. Within Israelite historical consciousness, the Exodus held a central place. The Exodus was recalled as the major formative event in Israelite history. It was seen as the event in which Israel was created. Their history as a people was perceived to have begun at the Exodus. As a result, the Exodus was recalled as that which formed the identity of the Israelite people. They were people who had once been slaves, but had been saved from slavery by the Lord their God. So this was a seminal event not just in Israelite history, but in God's redemptive work of salvation, of redemption. And so the way in which he worked in that time has parallels, the Apostle Paul is teaching, to the way he is working in the time of the first century Corinthian church and in our time. In other words, this time between the times. This time of the end of the ages. The time between Christ's inaugural coming and his second coming. That God is still at work in the same ways. And we need to recount and recall these things so that we can properly understand and interpret how he's working now and what he calls us to now. So let's look at that for just a moment. Let's, let's, let's hearken to our memory what actually took place and what Paul is specifically referencing. If you go to Exodus chapter 1, let's look at the first few verses of Exodus chapter 1 to kind of get this this amazing event kind of set in our minds. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. You may recall that Jacob's family basically ended up in Egypt as a result of a famine in Canaan. Remember Joseph? Here's the the great irony of all this. Joseph, one of his sons, was sold into slavery, wound up in Egypt, and rose to prominence and became basically the, the salvation of his own family when they came to Egypt as a result of the famine. What ended up happening is they settled there. Joseph got permission for them to settle there. And they began to become fruitful and multiply. And as it says there in verse 7, they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So you're you're talking about a few verses that are spanning a lot of time. And then in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities 
Pitam and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So part of God's redemptive plan involved his chosen people being put under this kind of oppression. Not only that, but it lasted for 430 years. 430 years of Egyptian bondage, but finally God raises up Moses to deliver his people from slavery. Now, when we look at the span of history, just, we'll just stop with this one point for a moment. When we think about the nature of God's redemptive work, that he would, according to his wisdom and sovereign purpose, allow for his people to be taken into this kind of oppressive bondage and slavery and their lives to be made bitter with hard service. It seems to me that he would also be saying that this is possible for any of his people. It's not out of the realm of possibility for any of God's people to find themselves in this time, in this season, in a place of some kind of bondage or of bitter, hard existence, circumstantially, of oppression by governing authorities. We know that this has happened before in church history, right? We know of persecutions, and I mean, it's going on now in other parts of the world. But this needs to challenge our assumptions about what we are entitled to. Okay? This needs to challenge our assumptions about the nature of God himself. The question that, that is put before us by this circumstance alone, this 430-year circumstance is, for the people of God, does God remain worthy of worship? Or... Is there a carve-out because it's so hard and we're being oppressed that somehow God is no longer the God that we once thought he was? So, like in Romans 1, we're going to make an exchange. We're going to go after the things that our flesh craves, and we're going to replace the eternal God with created things to satiate this longing and this craving and this created dimension of us that is oriented toward worship. But at least it will provide some kind of temporal, quote-unquote, satisfaction or relief. I would say that one principle we could take away from this as we think about this from the standpoint of God's work in redemptive history is that he is able, more than able, to make himself known even in the midst of the worst of circumstances for his people, such that their faith can stand. He'll go on to say in the succeeding section that we're going to look at about this matter of temptation in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. This is common to man. Conquest, bondage, slavery... It is common to man throughout history. And so what he's saying here is that no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation will also provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. Going back now to the nature of God's faithfulness to his people and his true people's faithfulness to him that he provides a way so that you can endure, so that I can endure. So he's, he's giving us this caution. Don't be presumptuous. Don't begin to think that somehow the circumstances that you're in right now that are, that are all together for the most part conducive to you standing with no real substance in you. 
Do not, do not fall into the temptation that somehow you're actually standing. You're about to fall. And what might be the very cause for your falling is something like this, where you're taken into some kind of bondage, or where oppressiveness is, is, is coming in around you through a work situation, or a school situation, or a family situation, and you begin to lament and begin to make that subtle exchange where you're no longer hoping in God and in God alone, and you're no longer reveling in all that He has provided faithfully for you, you're now looking at your circumstances and you're going, this doesn't work for me. This is not fair. I shouldn't be having to endure this. Where is God in all of this? Why is He not shown up? And friends, this is a track toward idolatry. Well, it goes on in Exodus chapter 13, as Paul references that they were all in the cloud. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 to 22, you have the reference there. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is after the the ten plagues that God miraculously executed to lead to Pharaoh saying, enough already, get out. Now we see this reference to the Lord's faithful leadership and presence with them. We have to remember, we're talking about well over a million people here. I mean, I don't know how you would envision that. It's kind of hard for me to envision what, you know, a million people needing to all sort of travel together out of one place and wherever the Lord's going to lead them. This is how the Lord did it. And interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul says that all were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. None of them were lost in this initial stage of the Exodus. The Lord leads them by this cloud, and then He commands them to encamp by the Red Sea, and after such an incredible deliverance, I mean, an amazing deliverance, at 430 years they've been in this bondage, and now they're set free. And they have Moses leading them, but more importantly, they have the very presence of the Lord in the form of this cloud, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, leading this million plus people to freedom and deliverance. And after such a deliverance, one might expect a show of confidence and trust in the Lord. But alas, it's not what we start to see. If you look at Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea, or at the sea, by whatever that word is, in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, I just described to you what life was like for them in Egypt under slavery. And Moses, verse 13, said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So here's Moses saying the same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying. Stand. Take heed lest you fall. Trust in the Lord. Do not substitute something else for him. He is faithful. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. In other words, I'm here. Remember the cloud? Remember the fire? Remember the plagues? Have you forgotten already? Lift up your staff, verse 16, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. This is just a little aside about the character of God as we see it in Scripture. God is glorified In his righteous judgment. Always. His judgment is always righteous and he is always glorified in it, is another way to say it. Just an aside. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 18. Verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in verse 2 when he says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is not some reference to New Testament baptism. It's a reference to being immersed in God's salvation and Moses as his instrument. They were immersed in this now. They were plunged into it. So we are called by the Apostle Paul here to recount these truths. To recognize, first of all, that God has worked wonders to save his people. This is, this is an important principle for us to remember our salvation and what God did in saving us. It is the greatest miracle. Rising someone from spiritual death to spiritual life is a greater miracle than him managing nature to divide a sea and people walking by on dry ground. It's a greater miracle. And we can easily, easily forget. And our faith becomes weakened because 
there's Egyptian armies behind us. And somehow, all of a sudden, what God has done, he's not capable of doing anything to help us. We forget. What you see in this section alone that we've already looked at, multiple times you see how people are inclined toward forgetting. Which leads to fear and grumbling and replacing God with an idol. So we're not only called to recall his deliverance, his miraculous deliverance, but he's also telling us we need to recall the Lord's miraculous, excuse me, the Lord's spiritual provision. You see this in verses 3 and 4. He says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is a spiritual food and a spiritual drink here that Paul's referencing. It's, it's a reference to God's supernatural provision of actual food and water. Okay? This is not some kind of reference to a spiritual food or something like that, or some, some kind of non-material provision. He's literally referencing God's provision supernaturally of food for sustenance and water for sustenance while they're in the desert. And you see this in Exodus chapter 16. I know that we're reading a lot from this passage, from this Old Testament narrative, but we're trying to remember, right? This is what we're trying to do. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, or Sin, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. There they are again. Now remember, this is a group of people. Do you remember what we just read? I mean, they, they just walked through dry ground on a sea and saw... It's just, but it's an indication of what we do. It says they... The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them... Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what we are, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And, has, and as soon as Aaron spoke the whole congregation to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is the spiritual food that the Lord provided for 40 years. Provided sustenance for them. In the midst of their grumbling and in the midst of their complaining, God was faithful. And then you have in Exodus chapter 17, the reference to the spiritual drink. Verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of seen by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Repidim, 
but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck, on the, uh, struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So same kind of idea. God is providing spiritually, miraculously, by the Spirit, He's providing sustenance for them in the wilderness. Water, bread, and meat. And yet, through all of this, you see the grumbling and complaining of these people. Which begins with them forgetting that God has already shown himself true. In astounding ways. And they are not reflective on those great works of God. They are not recalling them. And this is a principle for us that we are prone to easily forget God's kindness and provision. And we quickly turn to fleshly substitutes for satisfaction, for hope, for provision, taking matters into our own hands. Well, God hasn't moved yet, so obviously he's not going to move, so I'm going to go ahead and take this step. We're living in a day and time where... Patience and waiting on the Lord is not encouraged, naturally. Everything is instantaneous. You and I are trained by virtue of technology and convenience to expect instantaneous satisfaction, results, answers, direction. Please do not think that we are not being conditioned by the world that we're living in now. And that conditioning is not moving our minds away from who God actually is and how he actually works amongst his people. I said last week there are some consequences, there are some impacts of these revolutionary sweeps that we've experienced through history, the Industrial Revolution, the Sexual Revolution, and the Technological Revolution. And I'm convinced that we have many, 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 many people who profess some version of Christianity who have no idea exactly who God is and how he works amongst his people. Not really. And what happens oftentimes, more times than any of us would like to admit or even observe, is that when a trial comes, what is true about the person's faith begins to show. And the fact of the matter is, is that God has not changed. God, was, God saw fit to have his people go into Egyptian bondage for 430 years. But let's push it a step further. God saw fit to send his only son to pay the penalty for our sin. To become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And we forget We want food. We want drink. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We've got bills to pay. We get very, very carnal very, very quickly. And that is a slippery slope to idolatry. Again, the Apostle Paul is saying, take heed. Be warned. Don't don't presume that you're standing He mentions this spiritual rock. Let's just clarify that real quick. Some some have argued there's been debates around what he's referencing when he says there in uh, verse 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. There's some that would say that there was a rock that, that followed them, like a physical rock that followed them, that... And this is a reference to some kind of Christ's presence in the rock. 
But really, this is not a good way to look at it. One commentator, I think, has a helpful, David Garland has a helpful comment on this. He says, Paul may have incorporated a traditional Jewish interpretation of the following rock, but he gives it a uniquely Christian twist. The rock was Christ. He is not thinking of a material rock following them or a movable well, but of the divine source of water that journeyed with them. He understands the replenishing rock in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. What you can glean from Deuteronomy chapter 32 is is what likely the Apostle Paul is hearkening back to. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, you have Moses writing a song where he is recounting the wilderness wanderings. And listen to some of that song by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with, ve- with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons. That's a key phrase there as well. The references to the rock. And then verse 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful. You had forgotten. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Apostle Paul is referencing this rock. And even uh, further down in the chapter, he says in verse 20, well, verse 19 to pick up the context. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Same reference uh, as you have here in Deuteronomy chapter 32. This reference to the rock who is Christ. It is God who is the deliverer. It is God who is your salvation. It is God who went with them to provide. And in God in Christ. So this is, a, this is a reference to the unity of God's redemptive purpose and God's redemptive plan. That God's redeemed people are always looking ahead in the Old Testament toward their salvation in this rock. And we are looking back to that salvation being brought through Christ, the rock. This is just a reference to that kind of unity in God's redemptive work. So, in this first section, quite clearly, the Apostle Paul is calling us to recount or recall God's miraculous deliverance and his provision, his miraculous provision of spiritual food and drink 
But then finally, and we'll probably spend more time on this next time, but he's telling us to recall the Lord's judgment of the unfaithful. Verse 5, remember, he says, All were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. But then in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. How many people actually went into the promised land from this original group? Two. Over a million people were delivered out of Egyptian bondage. They were provided for in terms of God's presence and direction and his provision of sustenance and his deliverance from enemies. And yet they grumbled and complained and some were judged. And they grumbled and they complained and they substituted the one true God for created things and some were judged. And this cycle continued and continued and continued until eventually you get to this place where the Apostle Paul says they were overthrown. This is a word that just means they were, they were spread out. They were just cast about. It's just this image of corpses everywhere in the wilderness. Remember in verse 9 how the Apostle Paul ended that section leading into this. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here, he bookends this particular section with this warning to take heed lest you fall. Be cautioned lest you be disqualified. And in hearkening back to this amazing history of God's redemptive work amongst the people of Israel, what we see in addition to God's faithful deliverance, His miraculous deliverance of the people, and His miraculous provision of sustenance for them, we also see God's judgment of the unfaithful. This is not a teaching on losing your salvation. We'll probably talk about that some more as we go forward. This is just an instruction and a caution to those who have their sense of salvation banked on something other than the one true and living God and faithfulness to Him. It is easy for us to slide into idolatrous ways of thinking and idolatrous patterns of living. And simply put, it's largely because we have forgotten who God is. We we are just not thinking clearly and accurately about the God who made us and who saved us and what he promises to do for his own. And we have forgotten how he works in history amongst his people. And we have allowed ourselves to be lulled to sleep to thinking that God somehow, the way that he works amongst his people, is always in the appeasement of their carnal desires, their temporal appetites. And when those temporal carnal desires and appetites become threatened or short-circuited in some way, then we immediately turn to ourselves and to other created things and to other created people for our answers and our solutions and our remedies. This is the warning for us. We need to take heed lest we fall. All throughout the New Testament, you have this mantra. I was taught this when I was growing up. You are never, ever, ever to question your salvation. Well, that depends. It depends on what you mean by salvation. If you mean that God saves eternally, I believe it 100%. That God holds his own and none can snatch them from his hands, I believe that 100%. I just think that every believer needs to make their calling and election sure, as Peter says. 
and to be examining themselves to see if they're in the faith and to be taking heed lest we fall. There is this tension in Scripture for us to be not presuming ourselves or our carnal minds or our carnal ways of thinking onto God and making this exchange, who he is for who we are making him to be. And we need to be warned by this and recognize that God judges the unfaithful. He absolutely judges the unfaithful. He disciplines his own and he judges those who don't have faith. Well, let's pray. We'll be dismissed.